Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor those that the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that were there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. Thank you, Jez. Do you have that passage open in front of you? And uh, we're going to continue our uh, wander through uh, John's Gospel together. Uh, Before I uh, pile in, um, I'm just going to point out a couple of visitors here today. Don't worry, we don't normally do this with visitors just for the sake of it. Uh, Ruth and Brian, um, friends I think of Rosaline and Tom's, um, uh, they're involved in uh, Care for Calais, uh, a group um, looking after, caring for and providing for the needs of some of the uh, refugees uh, who are stuck there. And uh, in the back office we've got a whole bunch of um, rucksacks and medical kits and things that some people in the first two in this service have brought to provide for them. Um, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what they're doing and others are doing, do chat to them afterwards. Hopefully they'll be around for a few minutes um, after the service. So really good to see you here today. Great. John chapter 12, and uh, as uh, Jez said, is page 1080. So the word glory is in... Uh, such a fundamentally religious one that outside of a few very specific contexts, pretty much the only time we ever use it, say it, see it, read it, is in church. Uh, We've already had it quite a few times in our song so far today. We've had it in this reading. Uh, It peppers John. I mean, John, as a a writer, uses it twice as much as any of the other gospel writers. It's one of his favourite words. Um, Time and again, I think more than 40 times, he talks about glory or uh, giving glory or glorious The odd thing is, though, that when we think of glory, 
just say the word and you sort of imagine what, what that sort of conjures up for you, it's pretty much diametrically the opposite of what John shows Jesus painting as God's glory here. And yet for John, I want to suggest that chapter 12 is, is the biggest moment for him in terms of glory. For him, this is not the sideshow, whereas what we think of as the big thing. For, the, for him, this is the climax of what he's been building up to. Uh, glory comes again and again in the first part of John, and it's a bit more what we'd expect it to be. It's, uh, we hear it in John chapter 1. And uh, do, should we flip back, just work our way through? Because John 12 really does sort of, it pulls all the threads together from these first few chapters. 1063, uh, page 1063, um, we've got the beginning of John. And he's sort of answering the question that we're, we heard at the beginning of our reading, where those Greeks come to Philip, and then Philip goes eventually to Jesus. And the, the Greeks are saying, we want to see Jesus. And you could describe John's gospel as a whole as being an answer to that request. We want to see Jesus. So, says John, okay, you want to see Jesus? Here's Jesus. Here's my gospel. And glory comes again and again. And you think, well, okay, John chapter 1 to 11 sort of makes sense of what we think glory is about. To start with, there's this deep theology and grand language of Jesus as the light of the world, the word made flesh, the one pitching his tent among us. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. That fits. That's sort of what we imagine as glory. And then we see it again as he introduces us more to Jesus in these signs that John delights in, in the first 11 chapters. A whole bunch of things that Jesus does that are sort of signposts to his glory. The first comes almost immediately, John chapter 2, just over the page, where he changes the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And as you work your way through, you um, come in John chapter 5 to him healing uh, by the pool. John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000. Sign after sign after sign. These miracles, again, the sort of thing we associate with glory. So we want to see Jesus. And John is saying, here he is in all his glory. Here's my theology about him. Here are the signs that he did. And then, again, another sort of facet of it, he talks about the things that Jesus said about himself, the the great I am sayings. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 3, uh, where he talks about I am the bread of life in John 6. He talks about being the living water from God. He says, I am the light. We were preaching on that the other day. Again, those sort of fit with this idea of the glory of Jesus. I am, he says, And then we see as well the glory of Jesus when he meets people. He meets Nicodemus. Jesus' glory met in the dark of the night. When he meets the Samaritan woman in the noonday sun by the the well and her life is just turned upside down. Jesus' glory. There's a sense through these first 11 chapters of John, which is roughly the first two-thirds of the gospel, of a sort of building up to something. Like the sort of rumbles of a volcano that's about to explode. Like, um, I don't know whether you've ever been to a proper professional cycle race. You see all the cars going past first, and you know that the real deal, the actual bicycles are about to come round the corner. Um, maybe the anthems before a rugby match. That was good yesterday. Anyway, good moment. Um, uh, this is the rumbles. This is what's coming. The chapters 1 to 11 feel like they're building up to something. And then we hit chapter 12, and it's glory again. Listen to what Jesus says. They come to him, they say, these Greeks, they want want to see Jesus. 
And Jesus replies in verse 23 of chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. No preparation anymore, no sort of gradual build-up. The hour is here. If you want to see my glory, this is it. Everything else was preamble. Everything else was preparation. Everything else was getting you ready. Now, if you want to see my glory, the hour has come. Now, bear in mind, he'd lived 33 years of a life that was well-trumpeted, well-heralded. There was angel choirs and shepherds and kings and this great birth, and then he sort of disappears for more or less for 30 years. But bear in mind, he's also had three years of public ministry, and yet he still says, my hour has now come. Like the rest was sort of preparation, important, but not the whole deal. And now you find that John, having spent 11, 12 chapters getting ready, is now going to spend a whole third of his book on one single week in the life of Jesus. 33 years of living, three years of ministry, one week at the end. And John pours himself into it. Why? Because the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The problem is that I suspect that for most of us, the word glory is one of those words we sort of sing, we sort of say, we sort of read, and we, we assume we're meant to know what it means. And so we, we don't pursue it particularly. Glory means something loud and big and shiny and, and glittering and, and beautiful and wonderful. But glory in the Bible, if you trace its meaning through the Old Testament and into the New, has to do with um, far more than simply an outward show of something dramatic. It's both something that you have and something you give. We ought to just stand back for it, from it for a moment and, and understand a little bit of what it means. And then this passage is going to make loads more sense. To start with, we have to say that glory, the glory of God is something he innately has. The Bible says that Jesus had glory before the creation of the world. In other words, before there was anyone to see his glory, he was glorious. So glory is something he innately has. And the two, the two words, the Old Testament word and the New Testament word, sort of carry with them different connotations. The New Testament word um, has to do with radiance. Something you are dazzled by. Something wonderful. Something incredible. Do you remember back in Exodus where Moses has been up on the mountain, he's got the Ten Commandments, he comes down, they're worshipping a golden calf, he smashes the Ten Commandments, sorry, I'm compressing a very important story into a few sentences, goes back up the mountain, he's incredibly fed up, he's basically going to, you know, uh, throw it all in, uh, and God says, no, 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 off you go head into the wilderness with them. And Moses says, I'm not going unless your glory comes with us. The glory of God has a sense of who God is in his absolute innate being. God's godness, if you like. So Moses said, well, how am I going to know you're coming with us? I want to see you. Exodus 33, if you want to have a look at it. And God says to him, well, I do want you to know that I'm coming with you, but for your sake, I cannot show you my whole self because no one can see the face of God and live. But he hides Moses and he says, I will show you effectively my back. The language is a bit opaque, but he basically says my back. You will see, if you like, a glimpse of my glory. 
we might say it's a bit like saying you can't look directly at the sun because the light from the sun will burn your retina. But you can see its radiance all around you. It's real. It's really the sunshine. But it's a taste of the fullness of its radiance. You can feel the heat of the sun, but were you to plunge into the sun to feel its full heat, it would simply burn you up. And glory in the Old Testament has that sense of it's the radiance of God's absolute essence. All that he is, before time, in time, beyond time, that we can never fully comprehend. But we get to be warmed by it. We get to see by it radiance. The other sense that the words in the Bible have, particularly in the Old Testament, has to do with something we might not expect. It has to do with weight. It has to do with a sense that God has authority, heft, substance. Uh, Perhaps the the, the best way of um, illustrating it uh, would be um, uh, Charles here. Um, For sake of argument. Now, uh, Charles knows buildings, okay? And if you were doing a building project, um, if you were going to buy a building, if you were going to lease a building, and you came to me said, Richard, what's your advice about buildings? Um, I am incapable of not giving advice when asked it. I keep saying to uh, part of my, on the staff team, I say, please don't ask me your opinion, my opinion, because I always give it, whether I've got a good one or not. So if you ask me about buildings, I'd give it, I'd give you my advice, and you'd go away. And if you were wise, you'd then go to Charles. And you'd say, Charles, as a very experienced building surveyor and uh, involved in and, you know, renting out buildings and buying buildings and doing up buildings, let's get your advice. Now, pretty obvious question, rhetorical one, because you know the answer. Of which set of advice would you give more weight to? Well, of course, to the one who actually has the authority to speak from what he knows. Glory in the Old Testament has something to do with the weightiness of God, his authority, his, uh, his heft, his, his strength, actually his priority above and beyond all things. If I'm going to listen to somebody, who am I going to listen to? I'm going to listen to the one who is utterly glorious. Radiance, because we cannot fully take in all that there is to God, but he lets us see his glory. Authority, because he's above and beyond all things. That's what glory is, the glory of God. God has that glory, but glory has with it a sort of moral component. If God is glorious, the Bible says, then we are to give him glory. And he means it in a different sense. It doesn't mean to to give to God something he doesn't already have, because the whole point is, he is glorious. But when the Bible says, give God glory, what it means is, respond to that glory. Respond to that glory by gazing in awe and worship on the radiance of his beauty. And respond with obedient, bended knee to his authority. That's what it means to give God glory. He is glorious in his radiance and in his authority. And my response is to give God glory in my love for him above all things and in my service of him 
above all things. Now, what I want to show you, I know it's a very long preamble, I promise you, if you like, now talking about the passage, it's fairly straightforward. What Jesus is saying here is that in the very thing that above all else he's come to do, he is going to show us God's glory and he's also going to live out what it looks like perfectly to respond to God's glory. In other words, he's going to show us both. He's going to show us the glory God has and he's going to demonstrate to us how to respond to God's glory. How do we know? Well, look, verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and so now he's going to show us. How is he going to be glorified? Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I don't know whether you've ever held a single grain of wheat in your hand. You can imagine it, even if you haven't. It's tiny. It is utterly insubstantial. If, if, if anything has the lack of weight and heft, a little grain of wheat is pretty much as little as they come that you can still hold in your hand. And it looks, and in one sense, it is utterly dead, inert. It has nothing to offer. No more than Jesus' body. Stripped, blooded, bruised, broken. Nailed to a cross. There was a grain of wheat with no substance. Seemingly dead, to be buried. Nothing to offer. But Jesus says this unattractive, lacking any radiance, lacking any weight, this thing, actually when you allow it to die and plant it into the ground, what does it become? It becomes in all its beauty a stalk with fruit, the fruit of more wheat and life and, and health. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. His life given in all its brokenness and lack of any seeming glory will show the glory of God in its death because he will bring life and fruit and resurrection. It's a staggering thought. Amongst all faiths, amongst all imaginings of what God is like, if you say, what does God's glory look like? Imagine pointing to the cross. Imagine. How bizarre. Surely we should be pointing at a great golden throne. Well, the Bible does that. Surely we should be pointing at the great God of all creation who's made all things. Well, the Bible does that too. Surely we should be talking about the God of great miracles, whether water into wine or raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, the Bible does that. But what John does is having spoken about all of those things, creation, exodus, miracles, life changes, he says it's as if all of that is simply preamble. It's as if all of that is simply the rumbles before a great earthquake. It's as if that is just the clouds building before a great thunderstorm. If you really want to see the glory of God, the hour has come, you're going to see Jesus on the cross. That nothing dead, single grain of wheat. 
right at the heart of who God is in his very essence, in his very glory, is this determination to give his very self for those whom he has made. The self-giving love of God isn't a second movement in God, isn't an afterthought or a peripheral thing after his majesty and power and greatness and creation. It's right there. It's the pinnacle of who God is, his self-giving love for you and for me. Yes, we still only glimpse it, that radiance of his glory. Yes, we still only sense the weight of it. But his love for you and for those whom you love and for this whole world, for the unlovely, is right at the heart of God's glory, of who he is. So? Well, so how do we respond? Verse 25. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, I need to say something very quickly here. Um, Uh, just to sort of clear something out of the way. In the language that Jesus was speaking within the the sort of culture of his day, to, to, to love one thing and hate the other was a way of talking about how great the love should be rather than how terrible the hate should be. So what Jesus is saying is not so much in our terms, hate yourself, absolutely not. What he's saying is, love God so much more that it's almost as if you hate yourself. That's the way the language worked in those times. In other words, be so captivated by the, the love that God has for you, be so captivated by the radiance of his glory, that that love will outshine anything else. When we sing our songs of worship and we talk about glorifying God, that's part of what we're saying. We are aspiring to love God more than anything else. Loving God more than other people, loving God more than ourselves, loving God more than his greatest gifts. Not so that we hate those other things, but that in comparison, he is so far much more. What's the other half of the response? On the one hand, to worship and to love, and on the other hand, to obey. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm setting you an example now. You serve me because I'm going to show you how I serve my heavenly father. Do I ask my Heavenly Father to take this away? No, because I've come to die, to give myself. I will respond to his glory by obedience, to the weight of his authority, by serving him. Verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. We're going to come in a moment to communion. It's a funny thing to think of this meal as representing glory. When we think of glory as loud trumpets and golden thrones and massed armies. But when we realise that the pinnacle, the, the brightest flash 
if you like, of the radiance of God's glory. The heaviest weight of God's authority is to be seen there on the cross. Then this meal makes all sense. And then in breaking bread and in pouring out wine, in coming with empty hands to receive, we are simply saying to God, I've seen a glimpse of your glory. So I want to worship you. I want to glorify you. I felt a bit of a weight of your authority, of who you are. And so I want to bow the knee and say, you are weightier than all. I'm going to obey you and serve you. And in that place of worship and in that place of obedience, the staggering good news of the cross is that it revolves around a moment in history when God showed clear for all to see that you are glorious to him, that you are precious to him, that you are worth giving everything for. Amen.